This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss one of the biggest topics of our time, a topic that is with us in all sorts of discussions uh, around foreign policy, around policing, around uh, COVID, economic aid, uh, the question of big data how large quantities of data are used in our society, how they can be used, and particularly how they're used for surveillance purposes, to surveil the ways in which we behave, the way we interact, who we talk to. Uh, This is a fundamental question for our democracy because there's a potential for big data to provide assistance uh, and provide for more equality in our society. There's also the danger of data being used to heighten inequalities and differences among, among us in our society. And uh, we have the opportunity this week to talk to uh, the person who I think is doing the most important cutting edge in this uh, cutting edge research in this area, Sarah Brain. Uh, Sarah has just written a fantastic new book that I highly recommend to everyone called Predict and Surveil, Data Discretion and the Future of Policing. We're going to talk to Sarah about her research and about this book. Uh, Sarah is an assistant professor of sociology here at the University of Texas in Austin. And her research, really, it's extraordinary. She looks at qualitative and quantitative methods to examine the social consequences of data-intensive surveillance practices. So she really uses both qualitative and quantitative ways to understand how big data is used and misused in our society, has written extensively on these issues, and her book is really an encapsulation of a lot of the groundbreaking research she's done. It's also a very readable introduction to these issues. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Before we turn to our discussion with Sarah, of course, we have uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Does the algorithm understand poetry? I'd like to hear the answer to that. Let's, Let's hear the poem. The algorithm can tell the time of day when shopliftings are most likely to occur. The algorithm can track you through a hidden camera and know exactly when you will urinate in an alleyway. The algorithm can see you as a dot, nothing more, and the algorithm can count up the number of midnight helicopter rides that will scare you into safety. But does the algorithm understand poetry? Does it know what it is like at the other end, the way the sun almost seems inimical as the dirty glass door jangles open into the corner store? or what it's like to stare your life in the face and see it stripped down naked right in front of you as a stick of gum under a cash register roll of lottery tickets. The algorithm can track your license plate across the country. The algorithm can watch you step out of the car onto a bridge or walk to a snowdrift and deposit yourself within the cold, hard truth. And the algorithm can be there with you to search the indices for the relevant definition of crazy. But does the algorithm understand poetry? Does the algorithm truly know what it means to be so moved by a verse that you would end up on a different coast reciting Ginsberg under a palm tree or searching an old neighborhood for the words of a song on a cassette tape that you happened to have taken unnoticed from a junk shop? So what? How can the algorithm stand there and tell me of the law of men when the algorithm does not understand poetry? 
The algorithm indeed has seen the music fall effortlessly into your pocket in the back of the mildewed shop. Return it, it admonishes you beneath your palm tree. Don't you move an inch, it commands you from the other side of the dirty window. Stop. Why should you get to be human? I love the imagery there, and I love the algorithm speaking back at the end, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the sort of disconnect between big data and uh, emerging technology in our world and the humanity uh, that it's supposed to govern and somehow, uh, somehow chart. Well, Sarah, this takes us right into your space. Wow, that was so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that, Zachary. That was really well done, Zachary. Really, really well done. Uh, Sarah, when, when we refer to big data or when Zachary speaks of algorithms here, what are we really talking about? What, what, what is this stuff? Yeah, there's all of these definitional debates. And just sort of to to get everybody on the same page early on in the book, I, I just say, you know, I'm, I'm using this term big data to refer to massive and diverse data sets, meaning large quantities of data, typically that come from a range of different institutional sources rather than just one source. Um, and then the analytics that are associated with it. So there's, you know, you can use predictive algorithms um, in order to, to make decisions. There is other types of advanced analytics. You can use network analysis, geo analysis, that type of thing. Um, so it's sort of this catch-all term basically to describe the, anal- the collection and analysis of massive amounts of data that a human being on their own is, is unable to collect and process. And, and is this a new phenomenon? Well, so the use of data to make decisions generally is not a new phenomenon at all, and and the use of data in, in governance is not a new phenomenon at all, but the sort of big data era is made possible or facilitated by the mass digitization of information. So, you know, all of these digital trails that we leave in our everyday lives, that has really exploded over the past 10, 15 years, and that sort of is what makes this big data environment possible, I think. So it's new in that sense. And one of the, the the points your book makes so well from page one is that the data does not have prima facie wisdom. It, it doesn't give objective answers. What is subjective about it? Yeah, so that's sort of the idea, basically, that data does not necessarily speak for itself. It's not just like a mechanical reflection or a mirror reflection of what's going on in the world. And I think that actually Zachary's poem gets at this in a way, is that data captures certain things, right? Certain measurable observable behaviors and things that we do. But there's a lot of of sort of like intangibles in the lived experience that are not captured by different data points and therefore just don't make it into the corpus of, of data that we analyze in order to make decisions. And so I think that there's fundamentally based on who's collecting the data, what kind of collect data collection you're doing. And also there's some really interesting um, art about missing data as well, which I think is sort of an important point too. Um, That means that data is sort of fundamentally social. It, It just like social experiences sort of is better at worst at capturing certain things than others. And you make that point so well uh, throughout your book, particularly in the conclusion where you say it just the way you said it, that the data is social. It might look objective. It might look mathematical, but it's social. What are the implications of you know, what seems like a simple statement, but I think is an enormously almost radical move on your part? 
Well, I think that if we don't consider data as social, if we do consider it sort of objective, unbiased, uh, the ground truth, then what happens is all of the social processes that shape data collection become obscured. And so who cares? Like, why do we, why do we care if any of that happens? It means that, you know, the, patterns of decision making that police make are rendered invisible. It means that the the way that credit bureaus um, uh, collect our information and, and either, you know, make it possible for us to get good or bad terms on our loans, all of that is rendered invisible. And so what ends up happening if you don't consider data as this social product, this, this social resource, is you end up kind of missing the whole social and institutional side of the story and missing how the use of data for decision making can kind of obscure and amplify some existing inequalities in society. Is this what you mean by the term tech washing, which you use in the book that I had not encountered before? Yeah, I can't take credit for that term, but I heard it somewhere. Um, and I think it's sort of a riff off of greenwashing, the idea of different products being um, sold as sort of environmentally friendly. Um, and so this idea of tech washing is sort of the idea that that if you um, uh, saturate things or, or have this veneer of, of mathematics, quantification, um, computation on on top of things that it, there's this veneer of objectivity that comes with it and in fact it can it can hide intentionally mm-hmm. some of the biases that are built into the ways you're collecting and using your data is that yes. correct yes yes absolutely so one of your chapters that i found uh, really fascinating but also horrifying is where you talk about dragnet surveillance mm, um, yeah. and, and here's well sure what say more about what that is in, in in your analysis oh well dragnet surveillance is just the idea of the surveillance or the collection of data about everybody rather than just those that are under criminal suspicion so we typically think of the police you know yeah they stop somebody and they write down some of their information on a contact card and, and put them into the system or we know of course anybody who's arrested um, their data is going to be in in police systems as well. But dragnet surveillance is the idea that even if you don't have any contact with the police and you're not under suspicion, just as we go about our day-to-day lives, our data is is collected. And what's so concerning about this? I mean, it sounds similar to Google, you know, collecting data on my searches on my, on my computer. Yeah. I mean, so I think that if... There's no reason for concern necessarily, unless you sort of care about the inherent value of privacy, which is a different different question. But there's not necessarily a cause for concern if you believe that the human beings that then make decisions based on that data, and the human beings that collect that data, and the human beings that make policy decisions, really consequential decisions for individuals' lives, make all of those decisions and data collection efforts without any error without any bias, without any prejudice. And this is sort of the idea of like an infallible state that nobody ever makes any mistakes. And that's just not borne out in research, of course. Like all of us make mistakes all the time and and research suggests that we make mistakes actually in really patterned ways as well. And regardless of whether or not there's ill intent, that can sort of occur. And so why this matters though, is that it's very difficult to put your finger on exactly where or whom you can hold accountable for the errors or for the unequal effects of the decision-making based on these data. So what it sounds like you're saying is that that the big data obscures the, the humanity in, into data points while still relying on, on imperfect human beings to interpret that data. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. There's a couple of terms to kind of capture what you're suggesting there. There's some people talk about digital doubles or digital doppelgangers, wherein, you know, when institutional actors are making decisions about us these days, like what are the terms of our mortgage going to be? Are we going to get released on bail, et cetera, et cetera? It's not so much making decisions based on us as some sort of like holistic human being. Instead, we're making decisions based on our digital doubles and even more kind of uh, benign things around, you know, what movies does Netflix recommend to us? That's not because like, you know, they they know in our heart and our soul, our cinematic preferences. It's based on what we've watched in the past. Those are the observable things. And so decisions are made based on what is observable and the the human in the loop aspect of it um, is often rendered invisible. And what's so cool about your work, uh, at least for me, Sarah, and I think for many of our listeners, is these big concepts you're talking about, you apply them directly to policing. Uh, for this book that you've published, I mean, you spent a lot of time with the Los Angeles Police Department uh, looking at exactly these issues in practice. Uh, first of all, how did you make this connection to the Los Angeles Police Department? Well, so I didn't have any... Um personal connections to the LAPD or to, to law enforcement generally. I'd actually never even been to Los Angeles before I started my field work. But when I decided, you know, that I wanted to explore how big data analytics was playing out in the law enforcement context, um, I, I decided that I wanted to study a police department that was quite technologically advanced. And so the first thing that I needed to do was figure out what police department I wanted to try and obtain access to. So actually, prior to that, I had only done... Um, quantitative research using like existing survey data, but there just wasn't really any data on police use of big data. So I quickly realized I needed to collect my own. And after doing some exploratory work, I narrowed it down to Chicago PD, NYPD, or LAPD were the three departments I was interested in, which I guess is kind of unsurprising insofar as, you know, they're the largest, the best funded, that type of thing, um, and therefore the most technologically advanced. And so I tried to gain access to all three, and I ended up finding um, this organization, the Center for, at the time it was called the Center for Policing Leadership and Equity, now it's the Center for Policing Equity, um, headed by a psych prof, Phil Goff, who was at UCLA at the time, and it basically partners researchers and police departments, and I sort of asked them to introduce me to someone in the LAPD, Um, and I mean, it was quite difficult to get access to all of the people in all of the different divisions that I needed to talk to in order to try and provide as full a picture as I could. Um, But that was sort of my first point of contact within the department. And it was just one meeting. And so I moved out to LA for six weeks based on one meeting and uh, decided, you know, I'm just going to try as hard as I can to talk to everybody that I possibly can. And I'll see how this goes. So at the end of the meeting, I was like, you know, thank you for your time. Is there anybody who can take me on a ride along? And he was like, yeah, okay, sure. You can go with this sergeant went on a ride along a ride along is you know basically a seven hour interview and and you know he mentioned all of these different people and divisions and and I said you know can I get their email information or can you introduce me and so I did just like what qualitative researchers call snowball sampling for the first six weeks just cold calling people cold emailing people loitering around division offices you know I'd I'd finish an interview and then just wander around the hallways until somebody asked me if I was lost and then I'd do another interview. So it was really like an uphill battle in that sense. But after that initial round of field work, access was more straightforward because I had talked to so many people by then that um, other folks in the department were more open to, to talking to me. My presence was kind of like accepted in that sense. Right. 
Right. It's such an important point that, that I often discuss with my graduate students. Uh, so much of research is hanging around, loitering, and just looking to make connections. You don't know what's going to hit. But you, so much so, hanging around, yeah. yeah you just, and, and, you, and you have to just keep trying, and, and eventually you make a connection, and, and then it builds to other connections. Exactly. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of your work to me was where you were describing some of the ways in which the LAPD uses technology and big data. In, in ways I had never thought of, I think most people don't realize, you talk about this program Palantir mm-hmm. uh, that they use. And there was a section I actually wanted to read a paragraph from your book uh, where you talk about how they go from this, this gentleman, Doug is his name, goes from 140 million vehicle records to 13. They're looking for a particular car. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, he went on to show me how to look up which of the 13 had any citations or arrests, the divisions in which they received their citations or arrested, and identify one person who had been cited in the same division in which robbery occurred. If the person ended up not being the person who committed the robbery, officers could simply save the search formula and keep running it in the coming days, just in case any new data came in. I asked what happens, you, Sarah, asked what happens when the system gives a false positive. And, and here's the, the punchline, of course. What happens to the wrong suspect, you ask? Doug said bluntly, I don't know. Yeah. What, what are we supposed to make of this? Well, I mean, this was something that as a researcher, I really wanted to observe. I wanted to observe what happens when there's a false positive, basically, when the the data trail leads you to focus on somebody who ended up not actually committing the crime that the police suspect them of. And this ended up being like actually really difficult to observe in the sense that it, it sort of just manifested in like investigative dead ends. And a lot of the time, you know, I wouldn't be with the detective when they would go knock on this guy's door, for example. And so, but I was able to sort of see a little bit in terms of um, when I went on ride-alongs, like what happens when somebody would have a high criminal risk score, for example, in this this kind of like person-based predictive policing formula that they would use. And like sometimes guys would get stopped on the street three, four times a day um, and they wouldn't be in the commission of any crime or, or anything like that. There's not a warrant out for their arrest, but they would get stopped sort of over and over um, by virtue of sort of having a high high risk score. And I didn't do research with those community members themselves, but lots of other people um, have done done really incredible work on that. And and this can sort of undermine one's perception of the legitimacy of the criminal legal system or even the government more broadly, if you're sort of constantly getting harangued when you don't think you're doing anything wrong. Well, and, and one of the implications I took from your research is that the, the data is reinforcing and driving bias because they collect more data on particular communities uh, and then that data gives them higher risk scores. And mm-hmm. then they, they, so because there's more data from the places that they suspect of committing criminal activity, they collect mm-hmm. more data from them and therefore they have more data to follow up on. And so they're more likely to be stopped, harassed, et cetera. Is, is that a fair reading of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very much this sort of like quantified self-fulfilling prophecy, wherein if you, you know, continue sending your police resources, whether that's patrol cars or officers or whatever, to the same areas or to police the same people, you're more likely to detect criminal activity in those areas, whether it's a, a true or false detection of it, um, which then is going to create the arrest stereo- the arrest statistics to justify allocating more police resources to that area, you know, 
and so it becomes this this self-fulfilling prophecy or this feedback loop where you can kind of get a ratchet effect where the the risk scores and, and allocation of police resources become sort of decoupled from like actual criminal behavior. It's as much a reflection of enforcement practices as it is actual um, uh, uh, criminal offending. What degree of transparency is there uh, in these departments? Uh, what can the public know about how their police department is using big data? Yeah, so I mean, in theory, they they can know through filing public records requests and this type of thing, but you need to know exactly what to ask for when you are filing these public records requests. And so really, you know, like if they're without research that sort of identifies like the names of these programs, this type of thing, you don't even know what to request, like what contracts to request between the police department and private companies that that um, design the analytic software that the police department uses and that sort of thing. So, you know, there are many community groups, of course, and community members that have long known that the police are conducting surveillance. Um, but sometimes it's difficult to, to know really the ins and outs of exactly how these programs happen. And I think that that's one of the main challenges to democratic oversight of policing today is that big data policing is largely invisible, right? It's not always just like police saturation, a bunch of cops on a street corner where you can point your finger and say, you know, this neighborhood is being heavily policed or is being policed unfairly or in discriminatory ways. Big data policing is largely invisible. And so that that transparency, which is a first and necessary step to accountability, um, is, is really hard to get. And it's particularly difficult for the, the communities that are targeted to even know where to begin because there are yes. often communities that have fewer resources, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there is like some some really impressive community organizing going on, but absolutely, you know, like to a certain extent, there, there's just such a power imbalance um, uh, between the, the communities being policed and, and the police department. So, so once you describe this, as you do in the book, uh, and, and I've seen you talk about it elsewhere, uh, you're getting a lot of attention, as you should, for this work. It seems so obvious, actually. <laughs> once mm-hmm. once described, it seems actually intuitive that, that the data is being collected on particular people who they want to find data on, who then are more likely to be found to be doing criminal things or more likely to be suspected. That bias, that racism in this seems so obvious. How do the police defend this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, I think that um, on the one hand, when faced with the exact same information, people can have really different reads of it based on their position in, in an organization. So, like I, I mentioned in, in a um, in a in a previous um, response here about the person-based point system, right, where individuals are assigned, there's a formula for individuals getting criminal risk scores assigned to them. They get like five points for um, a prior arrest with a handgun, five points for gang affiliation or gang association, this type of thing. And then they get a point added to their risk score for every police contact. And when I asked individuals in the LAPD, you know, like, so how do you know if this is effective or not? Or why did you start using this system in the first place? Or like, isn't this just basically codifying racial profiling or quantifying racial profiling? Their response would be like, oh, well, the evidence that it's effective is that 80% of people who are on our criminal risk score list, our chronic offender list, end up getting rearrested within um, five years. And so for them, that was evidence of the program's efficacy. When I present that exact same finding to different audiences, they're like, no, that's evidence of the self-fulfilling prophecy that is going on here. And so I think like really, you know, depending on what your 
the institution that you're in and, and your goal and your institutional imperative, you can have a really different read of things. And a lot of the time, this kind of quantified policing can actually be very helpful to law enforcement agencies and officers encountering claims of racism or bias where they can say, you know, oh, well, I stopped the guy because he has a high criminal risk score, not I stopped the guy because he was in this particular neighborhood or I stopped the guy because he was like a 21-year-old black guy, right? So there are are legally defensible and not legally defensible reasons um, to stop somebody. And Race, of course, is is not legally defensible. But if you're able to say like, oh, no, it wasn't his race, like it's his it's criminal risk score, which is this colorblind um, um, error that comes with numbers that can actually be very helpful in in um, uh, doing your daily operations as a cop. Right. But that seems terribly deceptive, at least to me, because if you're more likely to have a higher risk score because of your race or because of where you live, uh, there's a bias built into that data. Absolutely. But I think that like data literacy, even in the general public, is not necessarily that high. And they certainly don't teach anything about any of this in, in training academy um, with, with the police. And so, the you know, I would often ask officers like, oh, can you, tra- can you define an algorithm for me and this kind of thing? And like some of their answers are great. They're amazing. And like they're, they're not at all correct. But I, I don't think that they, um, you know, I had people talking to me about Ouija boards and full moons and witchcraft and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I think that these questions that you're raising around like, oh, well, isn't there bias embedded in the data, et cetera, et cetera, that's not necessarily something that resonates with them or that they're familiar with or that they have as a critique. Some do, to be clear. There definitely were some um, folks, particularly in management positions within the department, like there's one captain in particular that that I'm thinking of that did have quite a nuanced understanding um, um, of these things. And I do think that it, it will grow increasingly part of um, how police officers are are trained, et cetera. But right now it's just also new that they're like, well, this, there's this new mysterious technology that we're supposed to be deploying and it's like unbiased. And it's just, I mean, as one officer described it, it's just math. Right. Right. And of course, math is supposed to be objective, people think. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so one of the parts of the book that really struck me, though, and maybe runs a little bit against uh, the, the goodwill that, that you hope and we all hope is there, is that uh, many of the police you interviewed themselves, they don't want this data collected on them. Uh, yeah. You have a whole chapter on police pushback. So it, that chapter indicated to me that, in fact, they don't believe this data is effective. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, I mean, that was sort of the funnest chapter to write in the sense that it was very unexpected. And this is like part of what I like about ethnographic fieldwork is unexpected things come up, you know, police officers reactions to their own surveillance that's made possible by the digital trails that they leave with big data policing was not part of the original research plan, but it came up on my very first ride along. You know, we pulled up to this house um, and and I saw the officer manually type in that he was code six at this particular address, meaning like we had, we had arrived at at the location and we're responding. And, um, I was like, man, I picked the LAPD because they're super technologically advanced, I thought. Like, don't they have some automated mechanism for knowing where their cop cars are? And so I asked the sergeant about it and he said, oh yeah, well, every vehicle is actually equipped with an AVL or an automatic vehicle locator that pings the location of the car every five seconds, but they're not turned on because of the police officers union. 
So it was like in that moment that I realized, you know, there's really a labor story here as well. And this idea of, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, you know, let the data speak for itself, et cetera, et cetera. That idea totally evaporates when the police are the ones who are themselves under surveillance. And and so what do you take from that as implications for thinking about these issues? Well, I mean, I think that there's there's a few things. Like first is is that this idea that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Well, <laughs> that falls flat um, when the surveillance is actually turned on you. And importantly, you have the political power, the organizing power to resist that kind of surveillance as well. Um, and and secondly is sort of the idea that like data is sort of this unbiased objective reflection um, of things that is never going to be misused by individuals in power it's never going to lead to to disparate impact unequal outcomes this type of thing I, I mean it just really does not play out that way on the ground when the surveillance was turned on the police there was massive resistance there was organized resistance in terms of of the union there was like more sort of piecemeal resistance where they were like ripping antennas off their cars, this type of thing. Um, foot dragging, they would often use their cell phones to communicate with one another instead of going through dispatch because there's an official rest record of dispatch communication. Um, there are all sorts of like surveillance thwarting behaviors that would be um, uh, evidence of criminality if like a regular civilian was doing this kind of stuff in the police's eyes. But in their eyes, it was just kind of considered part of the job or like a natural reaction to coming under surveillance. And, and so I think this takes us to, to our final question, Sarah. And this is this is asking you to, to go a little bit beyond at least what you've published in your research. I know you've thought mm -hmm. deeply about this. Where do we go from here? There, there's such uh, concern in our society and controversy from different corners uh, about policing. There are many mm -hmm. who believe our policing system has historical problems of racism and bias that have become worse or at least have continued on. Mm -hmm. There are others who think our police don't get enough support. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are a lot of people who, of course, probably the majority of people are somewhere in between and uncertain. Mm -hmm. how, how does your research help us get move forward on these issues? Where can we go as a democracy where we're going to need police forces, but we want our police to be effective, but also fair? How can your research help to inform that discussion going forward? Yeah, that's a key question. And I, I mean, unfortunately, I finished writing the book sort of before um, the events of last summer with the killing of George Floyd and, and when sort of like defund and, and abolish um, discourses uh, really made it onto sort of the national scene. But um, I think that what, what you're communicating there, capturing is this tension that exists between um, abolitionists and reformers. So if you think most everybody would say that some change needs to occur in policing, whether it's them getting more or less resources, do their job differently the same, not do the job at all, whatever. <clears throat> but the tension between abolitionists and reformers basically is like, on the one hand, abolitionists would argue that policing is a fundamentally racist institution, has been since the beginning of time for hundreds of years. Therefore, let's stop trying to tweak the system. It's just obviously going to reproduce inequalities because that's, you know, a feature, not a bug. It's what it was designed to do. Reformers, on the other hand, are basically like, look, local law enforcement agencies are here to stay. Let's see if we can police better and and use evidence or whatever in order to sort of make um, make improvements to the practice of policing. And I think that like what I've seen occurring in the context of this big data stuff or, or data intensive policing 
is a lot of problems in policing, whether it's racial bias, whether it's misallocation of resources or insufficient resources, et cetera, data is being kind of proffered as the solution. It's like, okay, uh, too much racial bias in officer decision-making, let's automate it using algorithms. Defunding the police and we need to more efficiently allocate resources, uh, let's use predictive algorithms in order to identify where we should um, allocate the resources. And while I think the, I, I understand the impetus behind that and behind movements towards evidence-based policing and whatnot, I think that if we are going into it with this assumption that we can solve fundamentally social problems with technical solutions or, or with data-based solutions, that's kind of a false promise and it's not going to work because, I mean, even as Zachary indicated, like, data is a reflection of pre-existing inequalities and issues that exist in society. And so if we think about prediction as basically learning from the past in order to project about the future, whether that's an imagined better future or not, you're going to have all of these different biases already baked in. And so I think my inclination would be um, towards focusing on what's that expression? Like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right now, we're focusing so much on how we can allocate police resources to to do to police better, to do policing better. I think we should think a little bit more about how we can reallocate resources to police less, to need police less, to direct non-punitive resources um, as well, thinking more holistically that ironically police reform, I think, is going to have a lot to do with what we're doing outside of the context of police departments as well. We have sort of an anemic um, uh, welfare state in many ways in the U.S. There there are other um, things that I think we can use data to, to direct resources towards. Spoken like a good sociologist, that we have to think about the larger social structure in which police, uh, police operate. It makes it makes perfect sense, and there's no doubt the place of police has grown in our society in the mm-hmm. last twenty to thirty years. Uh, and many of the problems that the police are asked to address, or that we tell them to address, are issues that they're not the appropriate institution to address. And I think you you say that very well, and and I think your analysis goes very well in that direction, Zachary. Listening to this. As a young person who I know cares deeply about policing and, and, and about the future of our society, what do you think? I mean, do you see Sarah's analysis helping your generation to rethink or reimagine policing in other parts of our society? I think that, that, that young people my age are really growing up without the sort of same status quo assumptions about American policing. And whether you think that's good or bad, I don't think that my generation is going to to go forward thinking that American policing needs to stay the way it is. I, I think that we're really in a moment when we can shape the way that law enforcement operates in our society. And I think it, that's because there is a willingness and a recognition that change does need to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's well said, Zachary. And I think, uh, Sarah, I think your work is is so deeply grounded in research, uh, but also has this real clear policy implication that, that you've articulated so well. And that I think it certainly inspired me. I know it inspires Zachary. I, I think it will inspire many uh, of our, our listeners. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for your program. 
and and I want to encourage uh, listeners to uh, buy Sarah's book and read it. Uh, it's again, predict and surveil. It's very readable, very short, but packed, packed with important <laughs> information. I also wanted to say I saved this for the end, uh, but I think it captures how how Sarah is an intellectual engagée, uh, really out there involved. Uh, she's she as a volunteer teaching college credit sociology classes in prisons uh, here in uh, Texas. I believe she did this in New Jersey as well, and she founded. Mm-hmm the Texas Prison Education Initiative. If you're interested in that, I'm sure uh, Sarah would be happy to, to get you involved. Uh, Absolutely. You so that's, it's really wonderful you're doing that. Zachary, thank you for your poem. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.